0: As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends.
1: I'm Alan Alda and this is clear and vivid conversations about connecting and communicating
2: I'll never be Michelangelo but I understand now what goes into the business of making a life drawing a naked human being I understand that better and boxing which has been a particularly rich one for me if they find another five foot five, Jewish writer who has been practicing a sedentary occupation for the past 40 years, I'll hop into the ring. But in the absence of that, the way that just those simple aspirations to mastery through perseverance genuinely burst our hearts with pleasure, that's accessible to everyone.
1: That's Adam Gopnik, a New Yorker magazine essayist and critic for over 35 years. His latest book is called The Real Work, on the mystery of mastery. And in it, he recounts both the struggles and the delight he's taken in trying to master skills that are entirely foreign to him. This is going to be fun because I think a lot about the mystery involved in mastering something. And you've written a whole book about it. So the idea that everybody can master something, do I have that right that you say that in the book?
2: Well, what I say is that we all can pursue the mastery of some of uh, something. Yeah. We can certainly all engage in the mystery of mastering something. You know, I in the course of this book, which took me fifteen years of compiling essays, because I didn't set out to do it in a programmatic way, I didn't say, oh, I'm gonna write a book about mastery. I just fell into one thing after another in the natural course of my existence for learning to draw, then I had to learn to drive in my 50s, and then I wanted to learn to dance with my daughter, and so on. Um, But each one of these things, I make no claims to be any good at. You know, it's a a series of essays on the comedy of inadequacy, my own.
1: (laughs) But there is that process where you get good enough to feel that you've got a grasp of something that you once thought you maybe couldn't even do.
2: Exactly, exactly. I'll never be Michelangelo, but I understand now what goes into the business of making a life, drawing a naked human being. I understand that better. You don't want to get in the car with me at 2 a.m. to drive from Boston <laughs> to New York, but I know what driving is about. And boxing, which has been a particularly rich one for me, uh, I, again, if they find another five foot five. Jewish writer who has been practicing a sedentary occupation for the past forty years you're I'll, in. I'll you're into up into the you're ring. Up, up I'm in, <laughs> I, you know, and I'm I'm going to Vegas, the Caesar Caesar's Palace parking lot. But in the absence of that engagement, I'm totally. Uh, I take so much satisfaction just out of the the feeling I have that I now am a much better boxer than I was a year ago, much less two years ago, and. The way that just those simple um, aspirations to mastery through perseverance genuinely burst our hearts with pleasure, that's accessible to everyone.
1: You're talking my language. It's music to my ear because my feeling is that there's almost nothing that feels as good as being able to do something really well. One of the few things better than that is being able to do it even better.
2: Yes. But, But don't you think, Alan, that that creates a kind of paradox in daily life. That is, the thing we do best, the thing we've devoted our lives to, is in a weird way often the thing that gives us least satisfaction. I suspect, right? You're being a master actor. All you see when you watch yourself is the space between your ambitions for the role and your accomplishments in the role. The rest of us savor everything you do, but you see, damn, I missed that moment. I didn't quite land it the way I wanted to.
1: That's true, but it's. I don't have to wait until I see it.
2: (laughs) You feel (laughs) it as it's happening on the way
1: home. I have this. I I wonder if you have this feeling. The difference between on a in a performance when I feel I've only been able to do eighty or ninety percent of what I'm capable of, that doesn't feel as bad as if I've done what I think is ninety seven percent of what I'm capable of. That that really hurts. Because I feel the gap so much more strongly,
2: totally, but my point is is that the nice thing in life, especially as we as we ripen as we grow yeah. a little older gracefully, is that the things we do in some sense inadequately by the exterior judgment of the world can give us every bit as much satisfaction as the things we do well but wish we were doing even better. And, you know, it, it reopens for us that that first, you know, that first fine careless rapture that since we had, when we were starting out, when you finally, you got a role or I got a publication and you saw it in print or you saw yourself on film and you said, damn, I, I don't look out of place there. I'm, I'm actually, I'm okay. I'm going to be okay in this.
1: I had that, not so much being accepted as an actor, but when I was, I got the, uh, the okay that I was a writer by winning yeah. an Emmy right. for writing. Yeah. yeah, I did a cartwheel down the aisle on the way <laughs> to the stage, because yeah. you can get it. You can get it an award as an actor for being cute, but you can't right. get it for being cute as a writer.
2: You know, I I got that very strongly when I was starting out, not always from uh, elsewhere, but that beautiful sense you sometimes have when you sort of crack the code of your art. And I remember to this day, the first moment when I was sitting in a basement room on East 87th Street, and I wrote an incredibly simple sentence. I am a student at the Institute of Fine Arts, and I work part-time at the Frick Art Reference Library. And I said, oh, that's a sound I like. Simple, empirical facts connected by ants." And once I had that breakthrough, I began to understand what good writing, what good writing really was. And so that's Part of it, But as we go on in life, we want to have that experience, right, with that's the flow, you know, that amazing thing. You know, we have physical aerobics, but we also have cognitive aerobics. We have moments when we're working, when it just gets to be easy, when you don't feel the strain of it as you had been doing. And I, that's a magical moment to get to. I say in the book, or actually, I don't say in the book. I've been saying on the road that it's like a, <laughs> that's
1: happened to <laughs> me too.
2: <laughs> I should have said in the book yeah, that it's right. like a cognitive opiate. You know, we yes. have drugs that we put in our veins, but then we're blessed to have a few drugs that we can produce with our brains, and they really make us high when you have that sense, and it's accessible to you. As I say, you know, boxing for me is the most you know, the most ridiculous one because nobody could be less talented a boxer than I am. But um, when that moment when you learn to put together the very strict choreography that your trainer teaches you, jab, jab, cross, slip, uppercut, when it, instead of having to think about it, it all just happens with your hands and the pads, you feel like Sugar Ray Robinson, not just like Sugar Ray Leonard, you feel like Sugar Ray Robinson. You have this enormous rush of pleasure, because what's happiness after all, putting our kids and our spouses aside, what's happiness except absorption? Those rare feelings at moments in life when you are completely absorbed in something outside yourself. And only afterwards do you look back and say, wow, that was a happy time.
1: And you mentioned flow, which any of us who get pretty good at anything start to feel at some point but it's when you're trying to master something i think this is true in most of the effort you made or other people have made to master things you approach it not by doing the thing itself right away but you approach it in little chunks chunks of technique that you do often enough until finally before you know it you're in a flow
2: always 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 if there was one thing that was revelatory to me that's it, right? The, when you're learning to draw, you know, serious classical, Beaux-Arts, life drawing, looking at a naked body with a light on it in the studio, you don't, the, your teacher doesn't tell you, open your eyes, not if you have a good teacher, open your eyes and observe. That's meaningless, right? <laughs> you can't do that. He says, for instance, my wonderful teacher, Jacob Collins, said to me, look at the face and just superimpose a clock face on top of it. And then ask yourself where is Each feature is in relation to that clock face. Is Alan's eyebrow at 10 past one, or is it at 11 past one, or maybe even at 12 past one? And by making those tiny infinitesimal gradations, you begin to familiarize yourself with the task. It It becomes more manageable, and therefore you're able to do it more correctly. He called that making tilts in time, and he put me to work for weeks just making tilts in time. Now, that seems totally counterintuitive it's this tiny little subroutine this stumbling step that you have to master but the magical thing is that if you persevere in those stumbling little steps long enough it becomes this seamless illusion of um of a sequence
1: that seems to be one of the mysteries that you're talking about exactly when you talk about the mystery of mastery but what i keep thinking about and what i what your book spurred me on to think more about is how do you get from the little chunks of technique to the flow? What's the process? Can we know it? Is it? Or is it like consciousness that we experience it, but we can't explain it?
2: I think it's a, it's a function of consciousness in as much as I know how we get there. And how we get there is dumb. We persevere. It yeah. won't happen because you do it once. It won't happen because you do it twice. It will happen because you do it six times, seven times, 70 times. And then... It's not, as, it's not simply that the segments become easier, it's that the segments stop being segments and they become part of the, the sequence, part of the, the seamless illusion, part of the flow. And the commitment you make, and this is a commitment you have to make, is to the perseverance to do it. And when you make that commitment, it can be, you have to want to do it. I mean, that sounds so fatuous, Alan, but that's, that's true. The good news is, I think we all in our lives Um, have made that commitment at some time or another. And what's incredibly rich is when we do it for ourselves. Now, it's the distinction I try to make between achievement and accomplishment, which I think is particularly profound in educating our kids. Yeah,
1: that's a very telling
2: comparison. Right, because we drive our kids towards achievement, right? Pass the test, get into the better college, get to the next grade. And they'll do it, but it leaves them sort of empty inside. Whereas where someday you walk into your... 13-year-old son's room, and you find he's practicing a card trick. You walk away, three hours later, you come back, and he's still practicing the (laughs) same card trick. Nobody's told him to do it, but the inner satisfaction of struggling with prestidigitation and getting better and mastering it. I did the same thing. I don't know if you did. When I was 12 years old, like everyone in our generation, um, I got a folk guitar and a big book of Beatle chords. And I locked myself in my room for a week and I learned C, G, F, E minor. I learned how to play Yellow Submarine, I think it was. And everything I've ever accomplished since is without exaggeration, is built on the platform, the foundation of mastering those chords because it was something I desperately wanted to do i wanted to be a, a a beetle and nobody was going to show me and the only way through it was to make your fingers bleed by bending <laughs> as you press them against those steel strings that's the foundation of the things that matter to us in life and it's not so, it's something that our educational system hinders actively hinders our kids from from attaining
1: i when i was 10 developed a magic act where i figured out how to make a cake in a hat <laughs>
2: So many first-rate comic actors began as magicians. Steve Martin was oh, doing ma- right. magic long before he was doing anything else. Woody Allen's first a- efforts were all in magic. Yours were. There's something about um, magic. I- I- actually, Steve Martin once said to me kind of doorly, you know why? Because it's the easiest form of show business. Magic is the easiest. <laughs> <it's> the- <laughs> no, I, I, think- think
1: I think it has to do with the comparison between magic and the punchline. Huh? Because the punchline is hidden. You're misdirected until the punchline surfaces.
2: Oh, that's really nice. Yes, that the structure of a joke is very much like the structure of a magic trick. There's, yeah. a, there's a, a slightly mystifying buildup and then it lands. And, then you and get it was the inevitable all the
1: time, but you yes. just didn't know it.
2: Yeah, yeah. You know, I I wish I th- I thought of that. Wish we'd spoken. I wish we'd talked. I, I think that's true, and I think that you, you know
1: it'll be, it'll be in your next stop at a bookstore. Well, you went so far as to follow your son to Las Vegas. Yes. To be with magicians who we could train with.
2: What was so beautiful about following Luke, if you haven't followed your 13-year-old son to Las Vegas and stayed up with him at 3 a.m. when all the magicians get off work and sit around talking, um, you haven't lived. And what was fascinating is that's where I got the title from, Alan, was... Um, all the magicians at 3 a.m., the pepper mill on the strip, a, a diner on the strip, they would sit and talk. And magicians have great shop talk. Writers have the worst shop talk in the world. There's nothing we can talk about except laptops and advances. That's it. We have no <laughs> we have no hidden stuff to talk about. Actors have great shop talk because all they do is they badmouth directors. So all they, they, they spend all their time badmouthing directors and authors, right? Can you believe these guys, the creative team? But magicians have beautiful shop talk because they can only talk to each other. They can't talk about what they're doing to civilians. So when they're together, they just light yeah, up. Right, right. And th- what they would always use was this expression, the real work. They would kind of mutter to each other, you know, Floss's Illusion, who's got the real work on that? You know, the, the Erdnay Shuffle, who's got the real work on that? And I was fascinated. What did they mean by it? And then I realized over time that what they meant was not who had invented the trick or the illusion or the gaff. They meant who is it who does it with... Maximum technical virtuosity, but at the same time with real empathetic engagement with the audience. Not who does it mechanically the most perfectly, but who makes it land, who really who really makes it uh, perfect as a performance. And that fascinated me because I think it's something we all know in any of the kind of work we do. You know, when you ask a plumber, who's got the real work in plumbing? Who's the Willie Mays of plumbing? They're not mute, they say, oh, Joe Catalano, until you've seen this guy working, you don't know what plumbing is. And we all recognize that in our our own fields. We know what the real work is uh, instantaneously. It's actually quite funny because the example I use, this just suddenly came into my head now, is from something that that engaged you. It was in George Plimpton's Paper Lion. Yeah, which of course which you
1: I, I played George
2: in you started all many years ago. And in it he talks about how at the all-star game or the all-pro game, I guess they called it, right? The the coaches didn't have to tell the players how to break up into first team, second team, and so on. The players knew. The players knew no one was going to play quarterback except Johnny Unitas, right? In the same way now, you wouldn't have to tell the other quarterbacks that Patrick Mahomes has got the real work. They know it, right, in the same way that in, in that time they knew that Johnny Unitas had the real work.
1: When we come back from our break, Adam Gopnik talks about his mastery of his own profession and about his experience playing himself opposite Kate Blanchett in the movie Tar. Just a reminder that Clear and Vivid is nonprofit with everything after expenses going to the Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. Both the show and the Center are dedicated to improving the way we connect with each other in all the ways it influence our lives. You can help by becoming a patron of Clear and Vivid at patreon.com. At the highest tier, you can join a monthly chat with me and other patrons, and I'll even record a voicemail message for you either a polite, dignified message from me explaining your inability to come to the phone, or a slightly snarky one where I explain you have no interest in talking with anyone at the moment. I'm I'm happy to report that the snarky one is by far more popular. If you'd like to help keep the conversation going about connecting and communicating, join us at patreon.com slash clearandvivid. p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash clearandvivid. And thank you.
0: For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with a modern design that lets you go further and do more. The exterior is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing, complemented by an interior built with integrity. The Defender capability is legendary. Whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions, its durability has been tested to the extreme. Powerful innovations like the intuitive driver display and award-winning infotainment system keep you connected. Innovative camera technologies deliver unobstructed views and effortless maneuvering. And robust cargo capacity means more room for your gear. Ready for a wide range of adventures, the Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight. To drive the Defender is to explore with greater confidence. Push what's possible with a vehicle made to go further. The Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at Meta.com slash Metaverse Impact.
1: This is Clear and Vivid. And now back to my conversation with Adam Gopnik. The real work as you describe it sounds a lot to me like that crossover from good technique to art or inspiration. The moment of performance when you're in control, but you don't even notice
2: you're in control. Yes, exactly. And you know what interests me so much about that? When does that happen? And my, forgive me, still a little graduate student left in me. But my theory about it is, is that it's the moment when ideal technique meets the deliberate addition of willed imperfection. And by that, Mm. I mean the moment, right, when you know, when you feel secure enough in your technique that all the mechanical side of it is gone and you can inject personality, idiosyncrasy. I was on a crazy book tour and it took me to Tulsa, Oklahoma. And there's a Bob Dylan Museum in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Beautiful place. Bob Dylan gave them his archive. And there's a letter from Bob Dylan where he's talking about singing. And he says, in effect, not these precise words, but this is the thought. I know I'm not a great singer in the conventional sense, but I breathe very, very well. Hmm. And that's true, right, about Bob Dylan. When we listen to Bob Dylan sing, what do we have? We love his breathing. He has a pattern of breathing like that's like nobody else in popular music, you know, once upon a time you dressed so fine. You know, it's that odd rhythmic breathing of Dylan's, and that is exactly the the kind of deliberate imperfection. Uh, by imperfection, I don't mean not good. I mean the human quality. It's it's like uh, you know, how do we know a great pianist from a good pianist? It's because the great pianist, the Michiko Uchida or Daniel Barenboim, they italicize their phrasing in such a remarkable way. They they, they backphrase a bit or they front phrase a bit. They they slow down, they speed up all within the measures. And that's what gives it its human content. That's what makes it sing um, in the most literal way. And that I think is true about every art form we undertake. You know, you wouldn't think it would be true about writing because writing doesn't seem to be a performance of quite that kind. But when you think about it, what do you love about a great writer, or an Updike or a Salinger? It's Yes, they have an astonishing control of the English language and an enormous vocabulary, and they land on the right word again and again. But it's the quality of a voice. It's the voice we recognize on the first page of Catcher in the Rye that will make us stick with it through everything that happens. And it's that quality of a unique human voice, whether it's in dancing, where it takes the form of of movement, or it's in writing, where it takes the form of sentence structure that draws us. That's where exactly where the art comes in.
1: When you talk this way about writing, you remind me, oddly enough, of what your teacher in drawing taught you, which you called the eloquence of the eraser. Exactly, exactly. Which is a wonderful phrase. But that yeah. reminds me of one of the reasons you had for wanting to learn how to drive, which you, which you didn't know how to do in your 50s. But one of the reasons was that you could take part, you could be the functional one, In the family. (laughs) In the family. The sentence, I wanted to be able to get ice cream at night and cinnamon buns in the morning, is, I think, the best sentence in the book. I love that.
2: (laughs) Thank you. Well, that's an example of exactly the principle of good writing that I was talking about before. It doesn't make a big claim. It just itemizes experience. But it
1: gives us a moment of experience that's so rich in such in so few words
2: well it tells you about our family <laughs> It yeah. tells you about about it. and it was true it has the advantage of being true that's all i wanted from driving i wanted to be able to say to the kids you know how that is when you're on vacation and it's nine o'clock at night and we say dad can we get ice cream i would to say okay everyone pile in yeah right i'll take you right now
1: what i want to know is to get to that sentence did you use the eloquence of the eraser or did it just did you did it come out of your flow
2: it used, most of my writing at this stage, after 40 years of doing it and millions of words published, comes out of the f- that flow with the eraser afterwards. In other words, I try not to edit myself while I'm writing because there's this wonderful thing that happens exactly that is the flow, that is the absorption, that the sentences get smarter than you are because you're not trying to control them or edit them. And you can be astonished by what you've gotten right in doing it. Then you go back over three, four. I often go through 11 galleys on a New Yorker essay, you know, just changing and fighting. I, an hour ago, I was fighting with my editor about where the phrase in short should be. Should it be in short, he says, or he says in short? And I was saying, it has to be he says in short, because that's like a breath. And if you put it in short, he says, it sounds like a term paper. And we were arguing about this. For an hour just now, so that's the thing you do afterwards, right? Is you 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 polish and perfect in that way. But the good stuff, that sentence that you like, that all comes out of the of uh, the aerobics, the aerobics of having spent forty years doing nothing except write. You know, I'm a very digressive writer, as you probably noticed reading my book, Alan. But it's it's it is, I believe, controlled digression. It's a way of. Of reproducing the flow of a conversation like this one, right? Which is interesting because we're not staying on kind of the promotional main line, right? We permit ourselves as people to go off in other directions. So I love the parenthetical digression in a in a story or in a book, exactly because for me it it reproduces the feeling of real of a real human voice, of real human conversation. And that's what I aim for always. How
1: do you take criticism?
2: Very poorly. Very poorly. And
1: yet you were an art critic for a long time. Isn't that? Or still are.
2: Isn't that the single greatest and most predictable? Uh, irony in the arts.
1: Sorry to mention it then.
2: <laughs> people who practice criticism for a living are insanely sensitive themselves about being criticized. <laughs> you know, if you say, you know, Frank Rich spent his life, you know, butchering one play after another. But if you criticize Frank Rich, you're very, very touchy about about it. It's, it's built, you know, people who are highly opinionated tend to not like having their opinions uh, violated. The one rule I have learned is, since you asked is that, is never to respond, right? I've Mm. been doing this thing in a reasonably public way for, as I say, 40 years. And in all that time, I have been sorely tempted at various moments to write the letters to the editor, to write the response to the critique and all of that. I've never, truly never done it. And I'm glad, it's one of the things I feel is, one of the few things I feel is spotless in my reputation. Because not only is it counterproductive, it stains your soul, it stains your psyche Mm. in some funny way. When this thing you do out because it's how you make meaning in the world becomes uh, uh, diluted, becomes polluted with contention. So uh, that's the one thing I can truly say is I take criticism very badly, but... I react to it only to my wife at 3 a.m. I don't. I, that's a, a thriving literary genre. Someone should write an anthology of them, the 3 a.m. editorials, things writers say to their spouses.
1: That's a good idea. I'm curious about your writing about the Turk oh, yeah. and the mystery of performance. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I quite get the connection between the Turk and performance. Tell me about that.
2: Sure. So the Turk, for people who don't know, was an 18th century, late 18th century automaton. It was a figure, kind of what we would now call a robotic figure of a Turk dressed in Ottoman clothes um, who sat above a chessboard and seemed to be um, mechanically playing chess, like a chess computer. And he was wheeled around all of Europe and America too. And he played Napoleon and Ben Franklin, defeated all of these great chess players. And people were confused, fascinated. How did this thing work? Uh, now, the answer is it was just a magician's illusion. There was a chess player inside the, beneath the chessboard who was cleverly concealed. But the fascinating thing for me about it was, with two fascinating things. One is that von Kemplin, the guy who, who created it, had a brilliant insight, but it wasn't about how you build a chess-playing uh, machine, because he had no idea how to do that. It was that Mastery at chess was extremely widespread because everybody said there can't be a chess player hidden inside there because it would have to be some wild midget chess player or a little child who's been enslaved there. You could never find a chess player that good who would fit inside the apparatus. And the truth was what what von Kemplin would do is go from town to town, from Paris to London to Boston to Philadelphia, go to a chess cafe and say, in effect, does anybody here need a gig and doesn't mind close working conditions? And he would always find somebody, pay them 50 bucks, and they would be the Turk. Because he realized that while the greatest chess players, the greatest chess masters were rare, very, very good chess players were (laughs) extremely common. And so he just recruited this endless number of good enough chess masters. And then the second fascinating thing, and this is the performative part, is he realized that if you put a very good chess player, inside this very impressive and scary-looking automaton, which was accompanied by smoke and music and all of those things, he, it, all together, would become a great chess player. The atmospherics of the occasion would be so intimidating to any player that it would be so outside your normal experience that you wouldn't play your best game, The, the, the Ottoman, the Turk... Would play an ever better game, and we all know that's true, right? It's the don't look at the little man behind the curtain. That the the atmospherics of performance are essential to the performance, and that context of expectations is a big part of of our response. Um, and that's the the for me the mystery of 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 performance, right? That that we can't see a performance solely on its own uh, isolated footing. We see it within this broad context of expectations we bring to it.
1: How about the doing of a performance? How did you feel when you were performing in the movie Tar? Were you <laughs> you got to oh, ask. <laughs> you opened the movie with a 20-minute interview yeah. as as yourself, supposedly as yourself, with Kate Blanchett. Were you thrown by any of that? Did you feel, oh, well, this isn't so hard. I'll be, I'll be fine with this. What?
2: Well, first of all, it wasn't my first rodeo. I had been a ham my whole life. I had been a kid actor. Oh, that's as, right. I remember reading that, yeah. As a kid and so on. But... Also, in a way you would understand, right? I wasn't playing myself. I was playing a part that I sometimes play. That is a guy on stage encouraging a celebrity to converse. And I've done that for the New Yorker Festival and just the way you're doing it right now. I, I had played that part many times. So I wasn't being myself. I was being myself, being myself, if you if you see what I mean. I was playing myself, playing myself. It was the particular kind of role that the director wanted me to play. And none of it was improvised. It was a scripted part. And I was playing that character. He had certain things in common with me, but he wasn't me. He was that version of myself that I know how to play from long experience playing him. You You might almost say, since we were doing it in Germany and we were pretending that it was in New York, I was playing myself, playing myself, playing myself, because it was three (laughs) steps removed. But it wasn't, but does that make sense? I wasn't being myself. I was playing a role that I play in public.
1: I'm wondering about the technical aspects of it. Perhaps your experience as a child actor prepared you for the, what can be daunting at first is when the camera has to change angles a number of times you have to do exactly what you did all over again, sometimes over and over again, and it can be a dent in your spontaneity.
2: I was blessed to work with a master. I was working with Cape Blanchette, and she was so—I know it sounds like a minimal thing to say she was so professional, but you'll understand the sense in which someone being professional is kind of maximal, right? Total control of the script, everything— is memorized. She knows where every psychological beat is. And I've said this, it it was like playing with tennis as a, you know, totally talentless tennis player with Serena Williams, right? She knows exactly where to put the ball so you can hit it back and makes you look good, even though, in fact, if you're not, right? And so that was very much what it was like working with two day, for two days with, uh, with Kate. She was in total command, and she knew where every moment was, and she was incredibly sympathetic to getting me to be in the right moment as well. And she understood the body language of an interview perfectly, right? Because my role as the interviewer is to lean forward, lean in, right? And her role as the interviewed is to lean back and tap the, the armrest of the chair. And she started doing that. And I realized that she had it exactly right. That's what a celebrity would do if they were just uncomfortable with the proximity of the interviewer coming forward, she's she's a, she's a marvel, and and it was a, it was a total you know education uh, to to work with her.
1: Well, you, you did a great job as you being you being you being you, <laughs> and I've enjoyed our proximity today. We're coming to the end of our time together, but we always end our show with seven quick questions, great. roughly to do with communicating or relating. First one is, of all the things that you could care about, what do you wish you really understood?
2: What do I wish I really understood? I'll be honest with you. I wish I understood the, the chemistry of musical theater. It's something that I engage in and take part in. I've never really quite cracked, and it's something you need in your blood and your bones. And I, that, that would be the first thing I wish I really understood.
1: Okay, number two. How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong?
2: Oh, great question. My daughter has a beautiful formula for it, which I've copied from her. Let, let, me, push, let me push back a little on that. <laughs> <laughs> so when someone asks her, you say, uh-huh, I understand. Let me push back a little on that, because that is less, uh, you know, confrontational, but it's still clear that you think they're wrong.
1: What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked
2: you? Oh, gosh. I suppose it would be when people ask me, uh, how do you write so much on so many subjects? Because the honest answer is I work very hard and I I read a lot. But the necessary answer is I don't know, right? Because it's kind of trapping you in an unwanted boast and you don't know how to respond to it. You know, how do you write so much about so many subjects? It's not how, it's that. It's, It's the work I do.
1: How do you stop a compulsive talker?
2: Oh wow, that's a that's a good question. I'm never I never can. It's part of the <laughs> art of the interviewer. It's exactly why I'm I do the thing I did in Tar is I listen and I nod and make desperate eye contact with my wife, like just you know give me another two minutes here and 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 we'll be done. I have no ability to stop a, a compulsive talker. It's part of my my deficit in my personality structure. I'm an obliger, not a confronter and obligers are always victims of compulsive talkers.
1: Okay, so let's say you're at a dinner table, you're sitting next to someone you've never met before. How do you begin a genuine conversation?
2: Oh, that's a great question. Um, not by asking them what they do or or what they work on. Most people are uh, like to talk about, like to brag about their kids. So giving anybody an opportunity to brag about their kids... Uh, I think is good. I think very often, hmm, this is a good question. Uh, it 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 helps to uh, make a joke against yourself. You you get to talking yourself in an uninhibited or seemingly unimpeded or uninhibited way. You say, oh my God, I, you won't believe. I'm, I can barely eat because I made such a terrible gaffe this afternoon. Let me tell you about what I did this afternoon. And the moment that you start stripping away pretension from yourself, and you make yourself the butt of your own humor, the table relaxes. You know, this isn't directly relevant, but there's a chapter in the book that's about this hugely humiliating uh, phobia that I suffer from. And I thought it was going to be terribly difficult to talk about. It's the easiest thing in the book to talk about, because everybody suffers secretly from a humiliating phobia, and it just, everybody nods and everybody relaxes.
1: So I imagine it might be difficult, depending on what course you're in to bring up your particular phobia.
2: Yeah. No, no, I can't bring up my own phobia because it's too embarrassing. It is, it's a urinary phobia. But making fun... I, I didn't but, know
1: there was... I didn't know that peeing in public, having a, in a public restroom,
2: I didn't know that was the thing. It's a thing. It's got a fancy name. It's called periuresis, and there's an international periuresis association. And amazing. I'm very privileged to say that my therapist is the president the International Perioresis Association. wouldn't go for anything less, right?
1: And as I recall, you achieved mastery over that problem by dealing with it in little chunks of technique.
2: Exactly. You disassemble a phobia or an anxiety disorder exactly in the same way that you achieve mastery, only in reverse. Instead of building it up, you disassemble it because you've been building it up your whole life, very often unconsciously, until you're locked in, imprisoned in this phobia, and you have to undo the phobia piece by piece. So if you're have you can't pee in public, you say, "Well, I can in a locked stall someplace that I can manage." Mm-hmm. Then you open the door of the stall, then you uh, try the try the urinal. You go down the or up in a sense the ladder of exposure, and you unbuild something that you built yourself. And you know what's fascinating, Alan? Everybody says that works for almost any phobia or anxiety disorder you you bring to it. And again, once again, it's perseverance and those stubborn, resistant steps that eventually releases you from that imprisonment.
1: That's great. Next to last, what gives you confidence?
2: gives me confidence? The happiness I feel when I flip open my laptop in the morning and I have something to write and I look forward to doing it. When I was younger, I would be like everybody else, full of inhibitions and uncertainties. Now I love writing. I actively love writing. Maybe I do it less well because I I love it, but that gives me confidence. That moment, flip open, cup of coffee in my hand, and I go, ah, now's now's for some fun. Now I'm going to write.
1: Good. Last
2: one. What book changed your life? Oh my God! So many, you know, I'm a compulsive reader. So many books changed my life. But if I had to pick one, it, it would probably be Salinger. It was reading in my in my youth, my 10, 11, 12. Not The Catcher in the Rye, so much great though that is. But reading Salinger's nine stories because mm. it revealed to me that things could be simultaneously wildly funny and and satiric and at the same time deeply moving and spiritual. And if there's been a kind of guiding star in my life, it's to try and follow that, to try and find ways of writing that are simultaneously funny and specific and New York in lots of ways, but that have some little glimmer of soul uh, in them at all times. And that, I think, was the, those Salinger Nine stories were the transformative experience of my life and set that ambition for me for all time. And Franny and Zoe his book, because I still write, I don't know if you remember the fat lady at the end of that book. And Seymour says, we all write for the fat lady, this unseen other, not the critics, not the publishers, not our peers, but for this unseen other audience and listener who's out there that still stirs and moves me. This
1: has been so much fun talking with you. Thank you. Thank you for taking
2: the time. I couldn't have loved it more. And thank you. I just, I honor and admire you, Alan, and it's just a privilege to talk to you.
1: This has been Clear and Vivid, at least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep Clear and Vivid up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. Adam Gopnik has written for The New Yorker since 1986. He has three National Book Awards for essays and criticism. His many best-selling books include Paris to the Moon, A Thousand Small Sanities, and his latest, The Real Work on the Mystery of Mastery. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our associate producer, Jean Chimay. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. Our researcher is Elizabeth Oheney, and the sound engineer is Erica Huang. The music is courtesy of the Stefan Koenig Trio. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with science writer Dan Levitt. When his teenage daughter announced she wanted to become a vegetarian, it occurred to him that he had no idea where all the stuff in our bodies came from. Finding out led him to write a book wonderfully titled What's Gotten Into You? When I realized that all the particles in our body came from the Big Bang and went through this unbelievable journey through the creation of the solar system. They were around during the origin of life. You know, I started to think, wow, how could we possibly know that? <laughs> right? I mean, how, what are the clues that scientists found and how could they find it? And that led me down the trail of wondering, well, what, you know, What was the detective work that they had to do? And, you know, and I discovered that for so many of these discoveries, it wasn't just hard work and great insight, but it was also trials and tribulations and a lot of rivalries and a lot of heartbreak as well. Those personal stories were just as interesting to me in the end as the science itself. Dan Levitt and where we all came from, next time on Clear and Vivid.